listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. Well, good morning, Harvest. I'm excited uh, to be here with you today. My name is Nathan Penny. I'm the uh, counselor of um, the pastor of biblical counseling at Harvest uh, in Oakville. And uh, I sincerely just want to say that I'm, I'm thrilled to be here today. I'm so excited to be here today. I hope you are too. You excited? You excited? Church excited? All right. Amen. Amen. Great. Okay. Well, if you've got your Bibles here, please go ahead and open them up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. And as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, I'm going to go somewhere else in the Bible, and it's a place really like no other, because it is filled with these saints that are living out these radical, obedient lives. It's a place like no other, because it's filled with these saints who are living for one mission, to please the Lord. And so let me give you a couple of examples. We see this man, and he's very well established in business, and God calls him to leave everything and go to a direction. And he does. And we see this other man who, who has everything that he could ever want in the world. He has all the wealth, all the status, all the fame, all the power. He's got it all. And the Lord calls him to leave it all behind and trade it in for a whole ton of suffering. And he does. And we see these saints who are being tortured because they will not deny the name of Jesus. We see these saints who are being stoned to death because they will not deny the name of Jesus. We see saints who are being sawn in half. So the question is, what causes radical obedience like that? What causes radical obedience like that? And if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, then maybe you've recognized some of these examples. It's from Hebrews chapter 11. And so here's, here's the question. What, what is the thread that connects all of these saints together in Hebrews chapter 11? And here it is. Here's the thread. It's faith. It's faith. By faith. They obeyed. By faith, they obeyed. By faith. They had a faith that produced in them both a passion to please the Lord as well as the power to live that passion out. They had a faith that produced in them a passion to please the Lord as well as the power needed to live that passion out. And the question for us here this morning, each one of us, is this. Could we have a faith like that? Could we have a faith that produces in us a passion, a passion to please the Lord as well as the power to live that passion out? And the answer, of course, is yes, yes. By God's grace, we too could have a faith that produces, listen, listen, radical, countercultural obedience in our lives. And that leads us right into our first point. You could jot this down. If you've got your pen ready to go, you could jot this down. Faith produces passion to please the Lord. I must have faith. Faith produces passion 
To please the Lord, I must have faith. So if you've got your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, let's read it together. This is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He said this, he said, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, he's saying whether we are at home with the Lord in heaven or we are here on the earth, our aim in both places is going to be the same. If I'm in heaven, our aim is going to be to please the Lord. If, if we're here on the earth, then our aim is the same, to please the Lord. This was Paul's mission. It was his desire. It was his purpose. And why? Where did, where did Paul get this passion to please the Lord? Where did it come from? Well, it came from faith. Paul had faith. Well, how do we know Paul had faith? Well, have a look at verse 7. In verse 7, Paul says this. He says, we walk by faith and not by sight. See, Paul had, Paul had faith. He had this faith that produced in him a passion to please the Lord. And so before we go any further, what does that even mean? What is faith? What would be a good definition of faith. Well, here's the definition of faith. It's kind of lengthy. We'll hit it a couple times. I'd invite you to write this down. Faith. This is what faith is. Faith is coming to Jesus and believing. That's the first essential nature of faith. It's coming to Jesus and believing who he is and what he has done and what he has said and expecting him to keep his promises. Let me, let me say that again, okay? Faith is coming to Jesus and believing who he is, what he has done, what he has said, and expecting him to keep his promises. You see, Paul had faith, but Paul didn't always have faith. You see, before his conversion, he was a different man. He was Saul. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was Saul the Pharisee. And, and Saul believed that he was pleasing the Lord by persecuting the church. Acts chapter 8 says that he was going from house to house, ravaging the church. Going from house to house, dragging people off, putting them in prison and condoning their execution. Until, until. He met the risen Christ on the Damascus road. And Jesus Christ struck him down. Paul, Saul was walking along the road. He was struck down by light. He was pushed to the ground. And he heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said. Why are you persecuting me? You see, the very thing that Saul thought was pleasing to the Lord, persecuting the church, was in fact violence against Jesus Christ himself. And when, Paul, when Saul realized who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, that he is God, when Saul realized what Jesus had done, that he had made atonement for sin by dying on a cross, even Saul's sin of persecuting the church. Saul was absolutely broken. He was absolutely broken and he repented. His life changed direction. He placed his faith in Jesus Christ. He literally became a new creation. 
He went from Saul the Pharisee and he became Paul the Apostle. And Paul the Apostle was a new man. And Paul was so absolutely overwhelmed that Jesus Christ had died on a cross to make payment for his sin that he treasured Jesus Christ more than anything. And this, this is really at the heart of Paul. This is at the heart of Paul's ministry. He treasured Jesus Christ more than anything. And because he treasured Jesus Christ more than anything, he lived to please Jesus Christ. And all of us do this. All of us do this. All of us live for what we treasure. All of us in this room. We live for what we treasure. If we treasure money, we will live for money. If we're treasuring the comforts and pleasures of this world, we will live for the comforts and pleasures of this world. If we treasure ourselves, we will live for self. Paul treasured Jesus Christ more than anything, and so he lived for Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us. The more we love and treasure Jesus Christ, the more we will live for Jesus Christ. The more we will live to please him. That will be our aim. Have a look again at verse 9. Verse 9. Again, Paul says, So whether we are at home in heaven or away here, we make it our aim to please him. Verse 10, for or because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul did not just believe who Jesus is and he didn't just believe what Jesus had done. He also believed what Jesus said, that all, all, all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that filled Paul with the fear of God. How do we know that? Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11. Paul says this. He says, therefore, referring back to the judgment seat, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You see, Paul believed with all his heart that one day he would stand before Jesus Christ. And that filled him with the fear of God and produced in him a passion to then please the Lord with his life. And so what is this judgment seat all about? What is this judgment seat of Christ that Paul was so concerned with? Well, he describes it a little bit more in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If we could throw that up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 11. This is what he says. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, Jesus is our foundation. He goes on, Now if anyone builds on the foundation, this is now talking about what we do. This is now talking about our works. And we'll see that there's two categories of works. There are works that please God, and then there are works that don't please God. There are works that are done by faith, and there are works that are not done by faith. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with, here's the first category, gold, silver, and precious stones. And then you notice the second category, which is slightly more flammable. Wood, 
hay straw. Each one's work will become manifest for the day, capital D, day, day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So quite literally, our works will be stacked in front of us and the fire of the judgment of Jesus Christ will pass over our works. Verse 14 continues. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but as only through fire. So this is not talking about the judgment of unbelievers. That's going to happen, but that's not what this is talking about. Paul here is talking about the judgment of believers' works, where all of us will stand before Christ and he will judge our works and he will give rewards for faithfulness. Not because he owes anyone anything. And not because anyone deserves anything, but rather because he delights to do so. Jesus Christ delights to reward faithfulness. The very faithfulness that he enables by grace. And Paul believed this and it produced in him a passion to please the Lord. But that's not all that Paul believed. He didn't just believe that that he would stand before the judgment seat. He also believed that after the judgment seat, he would go to be with the Lord forever and literally live within Psalm 16 verse 11 that says, In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, Paul knew he would stand before the judgment seat of Christ, but afterwards he would go to be with Jesus, his treasure, his inheritance, full joy, full pleasure forever. And so he longed to be with his Savior. So much so that in his letter to the Philippians, Paul says this. He says that to him, death is gain. And not in some morbid way. that Paul was passionate about living to please the Lord. But his desire was to go and be with the Lord because that was far better because Paul had faith. He had faith. He believed who Jesus Christ is. And so he believed to go then and be in the presence of Jesus Christ is ultimate. That there's nothing that's better than that. And so he didn't treasure his life. He didn't didn't view his life as something to be guarded. Or something to be protected. But rather he viewed his life as something to be poured out. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was his treasure. Now, if any of you have ever seen children on Christmas Eve, or if you've ever been a child on Christmas Eve, hand up if you've ever been a child on Christmas Eve. Anyone? Anyone? Ever been a child on Christmas Eve? Anyone? Okay, great, great. Okay. So we're experts then on children on Christmas Eve. What are kids on Christmas Eve like? They are excited, right? They have a smile from ear to ear. They are so excited. And why? Because good things are coming their way. And they are fired up. They are so excited. And they love Christmas Eve. But they don't want Christmas Eve to go on forever. 
They don't want an endless Christmas Eve. They want to get to Christmas Day. They want to get to the good stuff. Now, if kids can be that excited about presents that they're probably going to be bored of within a month, just saying, just saying, how much more excited should we be that we are going to go and be with Jesus Christ in glory forever, experiencing fullness of joy, fullness of pleasure that will only infinitely increase over the billions and billions of years that we are with him. How much more excited should we be here this morning? See, Paul was excited. He was fired up because he had faith. He had faith. And so he was overwhelmed with gratitude. As he looked back to the cross, he was overwhelmed with the fear of the Lord. As he looked ahead to the judgment seat of Christ, he was overwhelmed with excitement as he considered the reality of being with Jesus Christ in glory because he had faith. Faith and faith produces a passion to please the Lord. We must have faith. We must have faith. I want to grow in my passion to please the Lord. Do you? Do you? Amen. Amen. So here's what we need to do. We must have faith. We must be a people of faith. Faith. We must have a faith that looks back to the cross and believes, not just one time, but constantly. We need to have a faith that looks ahead to the judgment seat and believes, not just one time, but constantly. We need a faith that looks ahead to being with Jesus in glory forever. Not just one time, but constantly. Because the more we believe who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has said and expect him to keep his promises, listen, the more we will love him. The more we will treasure him. And the more we love him and the more we treasure him, the more passionate we will be about living to please him. It's faith. Faith. Faith produces passion to please the Lord. I must have faith. But question, question. Is passion like the whole thing? Is that all we need is passion? And we we read through Hebrews 11, is that all they had was passion? Or was there something else as well? Well, that leads us to our second point. Please jot this down. Faith produces power to please the Lord. I must have faith. Faith produces power to please the Lord. I must have faith. Have a look again at 2 Corinthians 5.9. Again, Paul says this. He says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. This is not what Paul is saying. He is not saying, so this is our plan. We're going to make some kind of like self-salvation project where we're going to do a bunch of good works and then God will be pleased with who we are. He's not saying that, okay? Because God will never be pleased with who we are because of what we do. Did you hear that? God will never be pleased with who we are because of our good works. God will only be pleased with who we are if we've placed our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been cleansed by his blood, if his righteousness has been credited to you, if you have bowed the knee and surrendered your life to him and declared him to be your Lord, 
then listen. God is fully pleased with who you are right now in your chair this morning, and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. He is fully pleased with who you are in Jesus Christ right now, and there's nothing that you can do about it. But here's a different question. Is he pleased with what we do? Yes, he is pleased with who we are in Jesus Christ, but is he pleased with what we do? Because the reality is that God can either be pleased by what we do, or he can be grieved by what we do. Think of it, think of it. Today, in the choices and decisions that you and I make, we can either give God pleasure or we can give him sorrow. You and I can give God pleasure and joy and delight today by what we do today. How awesome is that? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, the greatest joy of a Christian is giving joy to Christ. The greatest joy of a Christian is giving joy to Christ. And why is that? Well, because as we live to please him, what we'll find is that our joy in him begins to fill up. And so how do we then live to please him? How do we live to please him? What should we do? Should we leave today and then just frantically go and do a bunch of good works and and that will please God? Well, not so fast. Because God isn't pleased with just any good works. God is only pleased with a certain kind of good works. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, up on the screen. Apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. So what's our definition of faith again? It's coming to Jesus and believing who he is and what he has done and what he has said and expecting him to keep his promises If our good works are flowing from that, if our good works are flowing from faith, then that is a fragrant offering to the Lord. That gives him pleasure. He's pleased with that. But what if our works are not coming from faith? Well, check out Romans 14.23. Romans 14.23 up on the screen. It says, For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And this is one of those verses in the Bible that weighs about 20 tons, doesn't it? Because it it gets rid of all our lists of what sin is. Sin is not a list. Sin is anything that does not proceed from faith. And so so if if our works are flowing from faith, then God is pleased. If our works are not flowing from faith, then they are not pleasing to the Lord. Now consider this. Imagine that you own your own Formula One racing team. Okay? You are the owner of a Formula One racing team. And and so you've invested a ton in this car. This car is sweet. This car's ready. And so it's the biggest day of the year and the sun is shining and you're looking out onto the track and all the other cars are out there on the track at the start line except yours. Yours is still over here because your driver hasn't shown up yet. 
And so you're getting a little bit anxious, and where is he? And then you see him, and he's jogging, and you're thinking, great, at least he's moving toward the car. That's a good thing, but I've never seen him jog before. That's kind of strange. And so he's jogging, and he jogs right past the car. And you're thinking, what are you doing? As the owner, this is not pleasing to you. He's jogged past the car, and now he jogs past you. And as he's jogging past you, he's like, hey, hey, check out my new running shoes. I got a great chance in this race today. I'll see you later. And he jogs onto the track, and he lines himself up with the Formula One cars, and he's going to race against them. As the owner of the team, this does not please you. You have made every provision for him to be in the race in the car. And there he is out on the track in his running shoes. Likewise, likewise, the person of faith does not receive a command from God and then say, that's okay, God, I got this command. I'm going to do this in my own strength now. I don't need your help. Check out my running shoes. That is not faith. That is self-sufficiency. And God is not pleased with our self-sufficiency. God is pleased with faith. It's faith that honors him. It's dependence that honors him. It's dependence that glorifies him. Have a look at 1 Peter 4 verse 11 on the screen. Peter says this. He says, whoever serves, and that's all of us, right? Are we, are we, are we serving the Lord? Whoever serves, serve by the strength that God supplies. Why should we do that? Well, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. God wants us to serve. He wants us to live. He wants us to move and operate in his strength. Because when we serve in his strength, who gets the glory? He does. He does. And we serve in the strength that God supplies by faith. By faith. This is where the power is. Faith produces power to please the Lord. And we need power to please the Lord. We need power for obedience. Consider for a moment the golden rule. The golden rule found in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said this. He said, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is a command for us here this morning. Whatever that you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. In other words, in other words, go and love people in the same way you would want to be loved if roles were reversed. Live your life loving people in the same way you would want to be loved if roles were reversed. <clears throat> Consider that for a moment. If you were someone who did not know the Lord, you were lost and literally on the road to hell, you would want someone to come and tell you the gospel that you might believe. If you were someone who was hungry, you would want someone to bring you food. If you were someone who was thirsty, you would want someone to bring you drink. If you were someone who was being oppressed, you would want someone to come and rescue you. If we actually sit under the weight of this command to love others the way we would want to be loved if roles are reversed, if we begin to take it seriously, what is God actually asking me to do? 
and we, and we let that sit on our shoulders, the only logical response is to throw our hands up in the air and say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't have the strength. I don't have the power to love people like that. To which God says, exactly. Finally, Nathan, you're getting it. You need me. You need my strength. You need my power because apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. And God delights in giving us power to obey him by faith, through faith, as we expect him to keep his promises. Promises like Isaiah 41.10. Let's throw that up on the screen. Isaiah 41.10. Love this promise. This is a promise that is filled with promises. Isaiah 41.10. God says this. He says, fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So what is God promising here? He's promising power. The power that we need for obedience. Listen, the the all-powerful, sovereign creator of the universe, your God says to you this morning that as you seek to obey him, here's what he's going to do. He says, I will strengthen you. He says, I will help you. He says, I will hold you up with my righteous right hand as you seek to obey him by faith in the strength that he supplies. So what does this actually look like lived out? What does this actually look like to walk in the power of a promise like this in our lives? Well, here's what it looks, here's what it looks like. And this is going to sound like a strange word. Okay? It is kind of a strange word because it's an acronym. And here's what it is. Okay? It's called WAPTAT. WAPTAT. Okay? Kind of weird. But WAPTAT is an acronym developed by John Piper a long time ago to help illustrate how to walk in the power of promises, to how to walk by faith and serve in the strength that God supplies. So I commend this to you. This is one of the main things that we talk about in biblical counseling, is how to walk by faith. And so if you've got a pen or a pencil, I commend this to you to write this down and to memorize this and to walk in the power of this WAPTAT. Here we go, ready? W, W, what is W? What is God commanding me to do? In any situation in your life, you can ask yourself that question. What is God commanding me to do from his word? What is God commanding me to do? And there'll be specific times when God's commanding us to do a specific thing. Like at tax time. God commands us to pay our taxes, right? But if at any other time you're wondering to yourself... What is God commanding me to do right now? Here's what you can remember, okay? You can remember the mission of this church. The mission of this church to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commission in the spirit of the great commandment. If you're ever wondering, what is God commanding me to do right now? Think this, love. Love. Love is what he's commanding us to do. So what is God commanding me to do right now? 99.999% of the time, it's to love the people in front of us. And then we move to A. A is admit I can't do it. Admit it. 
Just admit it. I can't do it. I can't do this the way that God wants me to do it because he wants me to do it in his strength, not in my own. Just admit it. There's so much freedom in just admitting it. You want me to love people? God, I can't do it. I can't do it. And then P, we pray. We pray for God's help. God is commanding us to love people. We admit we can't do it without him. And so this is what weak and needy people do. We pray. We pray. God, would you come? Would you please give me the strength to love these people right now? We pray. And then the all-important T. T. We trust in a promise. We trust in a promise. Now notice it's not trust in a vague notion. Okay? It's not, it's not that. It's not... I think somewhere I read that maybe God will help me right now. I'm not entirely sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that somewhere in the Bible it says that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a, a, a chapter and a verse, a promise, where you are asking God for help, and he says, I'm going to help you right now. A promise like Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. And these promises, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or another promise, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, notice, at all times, you may abound in every good work. What an awesome promise or the promise of reward in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Promise of reward. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. T is trust in a promise. So what does God want me to do? He wants me to love. I admit I can't do it. I pray, oh God, would you help me? I trust in a promise like Isaiah 41.10. And then in the strength of believing that God himself is going to empower me to do this. He's going to do it right now. We act. That's the next A. We act. And we go and do the thing that God is calling us, commanding us to do by faith. But it's not us doing it. It's the spirit inside of us enabling us to do this. And then T, we thank him. We thank him for his grace. Waptat, again, I commend this to you. And I so desperately want to grow in this. I so desperately want to be living my life more and more by faith. I pray you do too. That's where the power is. That's where the passion is. Because it's faith that produces power to please the Lord. So maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, is there like a place in the Bible where we can actually see people living this out? And I'm so glad that you asked. Because yes, there is a place in the Bible where we can see people living this out. And we're going to go there right now. That leads us into our third and final point. You could jot this down. Faith produces passion and power to go outside the camp. I must have faith. Faith produces passion and power to go outside the camp. I must have faith. And if you've got your Bibles there, please turn now to Hebrews chapter 11. And we'll finish here today. Hebrews chapter 11. 
Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith or the hall of fame, so to speak, because it is filled with all of these saints who are living out radical, crazy obedience to the Lord by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. So many examples that we could look at in Hebrews chapter 11. We have time for one. So we'll look at the example of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11. Have a look at verse 24. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Notice right out of the gate, by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. All right. So if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, he was scooped out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, adopted into the family of Pharaoh, so to speak, for 40 years. So for 40 years, he grew up as the grandson of Pharaoh, and he had everything he could ever want. Jewish tradition suggests that Moses may have been in line to be the next pharaoh of Egypt. We don't know that for sure, but what we do know is that at age 40, he walked away from all of it by faith. He walked away from all of it. Now, now try your best to feel the weight of what this actually means, okay? In a world of poverty, Moses had everything that this world could offer. He had all the wealth, all the power, all the status. He had every sinful indulgence he could ever want, as much of it as he could ever want. And by faith, he pushed it all aside. And he traded it for something. Have a look at verse 25. What did he trade it for? Verse 25. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He chose suffering. He got the scale out, and on this side of the scale is every worldly indulgence he could ever want for maybe the next 80 years or so. And on this side of the scale is incredible suffering. He weighed those out, and he chose suffering. Now, how does that make any sense? Well, what kind of suffering was this? Look at verse 26. It says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. The kind of suffering he endured was the reproach of Christ. In other words, suffering for the Messiah. Suffering for Jesus' sake. And so again, he has the scale out. And, and, and suffering on this side, and all the wealth of Egypt, and he chooses suffering. Again, how does that make any sense at all? Why would he do that? Was he crazy? Well, it makes no sense until we read the end of verse 26, which says, for he was looking to the reward. Now it makes sense. Now it makes sense. Moses was not a fool. He got the scale out, and on this side, every sinful indulgence he could want for the next 80 years, on this side, the reward of God for suffering, and by faith, he made his choice. 
by faith. He chose the reward. So what is this reward? What is this reward that Moses was so focused on that radically changed everything in his life? What is this reward that Paul was so focused on that it changed everything in his life? And what is the reward God is calling us to focus on that there might be radical, transformational, glorious obedience in our life? What is the reward? Are you ready? Here it is. Here's the reward. It's Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself is the reward. He is the great reward. What other reward could you want if you have Jesus? He is the great reward. What could be better than being in the presence and glory of Jesus Christ? Could there be anything better than being in his presence and in his glory? And the answer is yes. There is something better. There's one thing better than being in the presence and glory of Jesus Christ. And here it is. It's to be in the presence and glory of Jesus Christ and to have him single you out and approach you personally and say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I set you over little. You were faithful over little. Now I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, the only thing better than being in the presence and glory of Jesus Christ is to be in the presence and glory of Jesus Christ and to hear him say to you, well done, and to know you have pleased him with your life. Think of it. Think of what it would be like to hear God say to you personally, well done. Well done. What would it be like to hear the one who loves you more than anyone say to you personally, well done. What would it be like for the one who died for you on the cross to single you out and to say to you, well done. What would it feel like for the one who is on the highest throne, who's worshipped by countless angels, who burns brighter than 10,000 suns, approach you and say to you, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What would that feel like? Well, as our hearts are steeped in that question, let's ask ourselves this question now, what is God calling us to do by faith that he might say, well done? Well, he tells us in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. If you just want to flip the page to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Hebrews 13, verse 12. And we're going to finish here. Hebrews 13, verse 12 says this. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him. Notice, outside the camp. And bear the reproach he endured. God is calling us this morning to go outside the camp. He's calling us to go outside the camp of religion. To go outside the camp of thinking that somehow we could do enough good works and then God will be pleased with us. Listen, that is bad theology. God will never be pleased with us because of what we do. He will only be pleased with us if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And listen, listen. 
If you are here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he is calling to you right now. Right now, he's calling you. He is God. And 2,000 years ago, he came from heaven to earth to give his body over to be tortured and slaughtered to make payment for our sin, for your sin. And if you place your faith in him, you can be forgiven and you can be saved from hell. You can be saved to God if you will place your faith in him and bow the knee to him and declare him to be Lord. God is calling us out of the camp of religion this morning. He's calling us outside the camp of self-sufficiency, of thinking that somehow we can do a bunch of good works in our own strength and God will be pleased with that. We need to leave that camp forever. God is calling us outside the camp of living to be comfortable. He's calling us outside the camp of apathy. God is calling us outside the camp of not loving people as we ought to. And you have to know that I'm preaching this sermon to myself right now. God has been revealing in my heart such selfishness. How much I'm focused on me. And God is calling me out of the camp. He's calling me to more. He's calling us to more, listen, more love, more life, more freedom, more joy, because ultimately he's calling us outside the camp to himself. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him, notice, outside the camp. Jesus is outside the camp. Jesus is right now outside the camp waiting waiting that we too would go outside the camp and then he would grant us all the grace we need to minister to people in his name. That we would speak of Jesus, that we would tell people about Jesus, that we would love people in his name. He's calling us outside the camp. Look again at verse 13. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. What kind of reproach? Suffering of all kinds. Because as we go outside the camp to where Jesus is, and if we're ministering to people by the strength that he supplies in his name, reproach is going to happen. We will suffer. We will suffer. That's guaranteed. We will suffer. And we're being called to that. As we move toward people in our families, as we move toward people in our workplaces, as we move toward people in the city of Kelowna, as we move toward people in other cities. Here's the question for us this morning. What does it look like for you personally to go outside the camp? What does it look like for you to go outside the camp of religion and self-sufficiency and living to be comfortable What does it look like to go outside the camp of not loving people as we ought to? Because the only way that we're even going to want to do this, the only way that we can do this, the only way that, that this will please the Lord is by faith. Coming to Jesus, believing who he is, believing what he's done, believing what he's said, and expecting him to keep his promises. And in a room this size, there are many of you, I'm sure, that are already doing this. And it has been hard. It has been very, very hard. But the blessing, the blessing that you have experienced, the profound joy you've experienced in your fellowship with Jesus outside the camp, 
The profound joy you've experienced in walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The profound joy you've experienced knowing that you're giving God pleasure and joy and knowing this, that no matter how hard it is, Jesus Christ is worth it. He's worth it. In the end, he is worth it because you're believing the truth of verse 14. And we'll close here. Verse 14. For here, we have no lasting city. Kelowna is not a lasting city. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We seek the city that is to come. The heavenly Jerusalem. There's a city coming. There's a city coming. And because we long to hear from the king of that city, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us go to him now. Where is he? Outside the camp. And if necessary, bear the reproach that he endured as we minister to people, again, believing that Jesus is worth it. That he's worth it. He's worth it. The power to overcome our fears to do this is found in this. Jesus is worth it. The power to take risks to go outside the camp is found in this. Jesus is worth it. The power to overcome indifference and to overcome greed is found in this. Jesus Christ is worth it. Believers, believers, he is worth it. He is worth it. This is the path of joy in the Christian life. This is the path of freedom. This is the path of radical obedience because it's faith that produces passion to please the Lord. It's faith that produces power to please the Lord. And it's faith that produces passion and power to go outside the camp where Jesus is and minister to people in his name. This is the joy. This is the freedom that God is calling us to. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much that you loved us so much that that love compelled you to send your son to earth 2,000 years ago. That he would, he would enter into this world. That he would leave the greatest place. He would leave glory and enter into this world and give his life as an offering for us. The greatest act of love that has ever taken place. Oh God, would you fill our hearts with gratitude? Oh God, would you, would you fill our hearts with fear as we look toward your throne? The day we will all stand before you. Oh God, would you fill our hearts with so much excitement as we consider the reality that we will be with you one day. We will live with you and we will experience fullness of joy and fullness of pleasure. Finally, full, complete, total satisfaction one day forever and ever and ever. And God, now you are calling us to holiness. You are calling us to a life of love, but not in our own strength, and the strength that you provide. And so God, would you please open our eyes that we would see how great and how awesome you are, that we would truly, truly believe that you are worth it. In Jesus' name. Amen.